Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzstraber. On today's show, the next big leap in wireless technology. As we go from 4G to 5G, what are the uh, potential technologies that we're going to see? How is this going to affect consumers? And what are the regulatory barriers standing in the way? Joining me to discuss this is Peter Rasavi, president of Rasavi Research, a wireless technology consulting firm. He's been specializing in this technology for over 20 years. And he's written over 160 articles and publications on the subject, which you can find at his website, which is linked to in the show notes for today's episode. Peter, thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So before we jump in, let's kind of put this whole thing in context, because to a consumer, when we hear 3G and then it goes to 4G and then it goes to 5G, that kind of belies the advancement because it makes it sound like it's only one order of magnitude. But it really is not. It is each each time we go to a new G, it's a big leap. So, what are could you p- kind of put in human terms both the speeds we're talking about and the activities that you can do with these speeds? Each G has been a huge leap in capability. Each G really represents an entirely new platform. Uh, 1G was analog cellular, 2G was our first digital cellular in the 90s, and now we've worked our way to 4G, and the best-known technology for 4G right now is LTE, long-term evolution. That is the technology that is powering today's smartphones and letting people uh, browse the internet quickly and access email and do social networking and see videos on their phones and tablets and laptops, and so forth. 5G is a whole huge new quantum step below, uh, beyond that. And when we talk about 5G, is that kind of like your home broadband connection, which we generally think of as faster than 4G on average, depending on where you are in the country, essentially getting those really high speeds that you count on at home on your phone when you're out and about? Exactly. That will be one very significant capability of 5G, which is the ability to get the 100 megabit per second and higher, even up to a gigabit per second um, types of speeds. In fact, the ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, which sets the requirements for 5G in what they call IMT 2020, IMT standing for International Mobile Telephone, Um, Their requirement is that under ideal conditions, 5G should in fact be capable of 20 gigabits per second speeds. But that's not the typical kind of speed a user would experience, but it shows what the technology is capable of. Yeah, and just to put that in perspective, a one gigabit connection is way more than any average consumer would ever need. And just to illustrate that, even if you have a gigabit connection, your Netflix video is still going to stream between like three and six megabits if it's HD, maybe around 25 if it's 4K. So you're not even close to using up all that bandwidth. And we're talking about 20 times a gigabit. So the potential is really staggering. And of course, that'll get diluted, you know, more people on a tower. But really, we're talking about things like ultra HD, virtual reality, the Internet of Things. Um, That's an interesting angle because right now 4G is essentially used for just a broadband connection for typical stuff. But we've talked about the internet of things on this show before. Every device in your house having an internet connection, vehicle to vehicle communication. How does 5G relate to the internet of things and these newer connected devices that are going to be coming to market? 5G is being designed to address a very wide range of what people are calling use cases. 
and that really just translates to being able to support a very large number of applications. As exciting as ultra-mobile broadband may be, Internet of Things doesn't always require very high speeds. For Internet of Things, many applications need to communicate only slowly, but they need to do it with very good energy efficiency. So, for example, a battery powering a device may last for 10 years. With Internet of Things, you also may need to deploy in very high density. So one of the goals for 5G is to be able to support up to a million devices per square kilometers. That points to a future where so many of the things around us are connected. Yeah, so right now, when we talk about device proliferation and a lot of devices connected in a home, we're talking about having a lot of phones, having a lot of iPads, having a lot of video game consoles, having a lot of laptops. And that could be a lot, but we're not talking about a million in a square mile with that. A million in a square mile is like when your coffee maker has an internet connection and maybe your lights and your refrigerator. And it's basically every single thing that runs on electricity has the potential to be connected to the internet. Right. That, that is absolutely the case. So what needs to happen for 5G to happen? I mean, clearly there's just the technological stuff, like what the companies are doing, testing it, rolling it out experimenting. That's all research and development that happens on the private side. But of course, the government plays a role. The spec, uh, the airwaves are public until they are sold or licensed or you know bought uh, by a private company or a set of companies. And you have a right to broadcast a signal at a certain frequency. What, what are we talking about when we say that 5G needs more spectrum? Or, or what are the things that government has to do to pave the way for this new technology? There are a number of things that government can do that will ensure the success of 5G. Uh, in the spectrum area, we need spectrum both at very high frequencies and also at lower frequencies. In the higher frequencies, the FCC has actually uh, made some very positive steps in their recent rulemaking to make frequencies at 28 um, 37, uh, 39 gigahertz available for licensed use and additional spectrum for unlicensed. Um, so that is a good first step. Those high frequencies are referred to as millimeter wave. And the reason those frequencies are exciting is that there is a lot more spectrum at those higher frequencies, up to 10 times or even more than 10 times as much spectrum as we have today for cellular networks. That spectrum translates directly to capacity. But we should keep in mind that even though those frequencies will provide extraordinary new speeds and capabilities, they will only work in a small cell context. So the other thing the government needs to do is to facilitate the deployment of what will ultimately be hundreds of thousands and beyond that, millions of small cells. Yeah, just to put this into context, when we talk about high frequency, that means it travels less distance and lower frequency ha travels more distance. So think about your home Wi-Fi. A lot of times, nowadays, most consumers have both a, a router that broadcasts both a 2.4 gigahertz signal and a 5 gigahertz signal. And the 2.4 goes further. So if you're in a back room uh, upstairs in your house and the router's downstairs in your kitchen, you're probably going to want to use the 2.4. But there are trade-offs because while the 5 gigahertz connection is travels less distance, it is less crowded because you're fewer of your neighbors are using it and people outside are not clogging that signal as much. So just 
so listeners understand what, what, what Peter's getting at with small cells is that when you're talking about 28 gigahertz, 30 something gigahertz, that's not going to travel very far. So you need a lot of cellular small cells, a lot of little towers, little tiny devices that can keep the signal going. Whereas when you're talking about a low frequency cell tower, you could probably put one tower and power the whole neighborhood. So the challenges for high frequency are deployment challenges. And what does the FCC need to do to make it easier for carriers to make sure that small cells are deployed all over the place so that these high frequency bands can actually be used? 5G and even today with 4G technology, the radio capabilities exist for small cell deployment. The real challenge is in obtaining the sites and connecting the sites. You might think that putting a radio uh, transmitter on a light pole would be a simple thing to do, but it is not. Right. Because that light pole might be owned by the federal government. It might be owned by local city government. That city government might be a different government than the government six blocks away. So today, the biggest obstacle for getting a lot of cells deployed is really the logistical and siting aspects. So if you wanted to do this now, you would have to, like you said, deal with local government, state government, federal government. That's a lot of things to juggle. There's only some companies that can really, that even have the capability to handle these regulations, that have the lawyers to fight legal disputes. Can, even though the FCC is federal and a lot of these issues are hyper-local, is there a positive role that the FCC can play, maybe not in overturning state laws, we saw how that went with Muni Broadband, but in terms of identifying barriers, using their expertise to go to a local city council hearing and say, hey, you've got an anti-competitive law on the books or this is preventing small cell deployment. I mean, this is the expert independent agency that the chairman keeps saying it is, right? So what can they do to help? I, this is not actually something I've studied closely, but what I can imagine them doing is developing good reference models, providing education, uh, providing templates for um, what has been successful in certain areas so that there is a consistency of local rulemaking. Um, so there's actually probably a lot the FCC could do in this area. And then, of course, maybe it's up to states to, to pass laws at the state level that just say, hey, if there's no really good reason to stop someone from building a small cell, you've got to let it happen. And, and kind of taking away that power from local governments. Because like you say, it could be ridiculous that you're in the middle of small cell deployment and you cross one block and you're now under a completely different legal regime. I mean, how is anyone going to get this done if, it, if it's so granular and every step of approval is so onerous? And it should be simple to attach things to light poles. I mean, this should not be a big deal. But uh, so setting aside some of those regulatory hurdles in terms of deployment, there's also regulatory hurdles on what you could do with the network once it's deployed. And we've beat this horse to death on the show before, but the FCC's open internet order, the so-called net neutrality regulations, there is a bright line ban on paid prioritization. And we talked about on the show before how paid prioritization could benefit services that are very latency sensitive. You know, the internet term is lag. Anyone who plays online video games and gets frustrated when in the middle of the game, their game jitters and then the other guy shoots you because he wasn't lagging. It can be very frustrating. That's a casual example, but there's more important examples like 
health care and uh, telesurgery. So how does deployment of 5G and this taking this next step, what does that say about the FCC's ban on traffic prioritization? And you, do you think that that could hamper the potential of 5G? It could not only hamper 5G, it could really undermine the motivation to invest in 5G to begin with. The ITU, the organization I mentioned before that is developing the requirements for 5G, it has a very useful model and it divides use cases into three areas. One is the ultramobile broadband that I had mentioned. Another is the massive IoT, which is deploying sensors and and communications capabilities throughout the environment. Internet the, of things, yeah. Internet of things. And in 5G, we call it massive internet of things. For the third category of use cases, the model refers to ultra-reliable, low-latency communications. And that is something we cannot do with 4G technologies. Even though those two other areas, we're already with 4G, we're already addressing IoT very effectively, and there are enhancements coming out that will make IoT even more practical. But in 5G, we'd like to address a whole new category of applications, uh, such as what you mentioned, extremely low lag communications. Sometimes people call that the tactile internet. It means the internet responds to you in real time. You could use this for robotics. You could use this for autonomous cars. Imagine a sensor environment around roads detecting when pedestrians are in the road. That infrastructure communicates with cars and then cars would know if, when going around the corner, for example, if somebody's going to be in the street. The difference between a one millisecond, which is the goal for 5G ultra low latency, one thousandth of a second, and today's 10 milliseconds or 100 milliseconds is the difference between hitting that pedestrian or not. Yeah. So we have these entire new use cases that depend on low latency and ultra reliability only way that can be accomplished is through traffic prioritization. Isn't the argument on the other side? So th- there are people who say all bits are created equal and that the internet will be broken if we start to say that something like vehicle-to-vehicle communication gets priority over reading a food blog. And I know I, I use a ridiculous example, but there are people who really say that there is no justification for one service being prioritized over another, maybe with a carve-out for things like telesurgery, because that's a hell of an unpopular argument to make that life-saving surgery being done over a webcam should not be prioritized. But things like vehicle-to-vehicle and live video and online gaming their argument might be that, well, if we get 5G out, the speeds will be so high that we won't need to prioritize. And you just mentioned that 4G, you can't do the prioritization with maybe that effectively. So what do you say to the idea that the solution to the desire to prioritize is just to make everything so fast that nothing needs priority? Unfortunately, that will not work especially because this is a radio environment where congestion occurs, where sometimes signals are weak and difficult to propagate. Uh, One of the misconceptions about network neutrality is that it's a zero-sum game, that if I prioritize one person, that will, by definition, adversely affect somebody else. However, that is just not true. You can prioritize in a way such that other applications don't even 
see how the prioritized traffic is getting through, especially when the prioritized traffic is low volume traffic. It doesn't take that many bits of information to communicate that somebody is in the environment and that a car could stop. In fact, that amount of communication might just, it might be three or four orders of magnitude less in bits than somebody's video stream where they're watching a movie. The network can in fact intelligently prioritize traffic to maximize a benefit to a large number of categories of users. Um, and it's just very unfortunate that we can't even be exploring that potential, not only of 5G, but that capability exists today in today's 4G networks. And when you say it's not a zero-sum game, I I'm not an engineer, so correct me if I'm wrong, but let's try to illustrate this in a simple way for our listeners. Let's say we're talking about a 100 megabit home connection and a Netflix video streams at five megabits you would think that that means the video would never ever have a problem, but that's just not how the internet works. Applications try to grab the bandwidth they need to function. Would a prioritization scheme, what that really looks like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, would that be something like, we know Netflix needs five megabits, right? So let's set aside five megabits of this 100 megabits and just cap it and say, Netflix is going to always go here every time. And it's not going to compete with all the other activities you're doing in your house for signal. And that will help it work better. I mean, is that kind of what they mean by fast lanes? It's like set asides for certain applications so that they work well and don't have interference. Or, I mean, is that what you mean by a, a non-zero sum game? Because then there'll still be 95 megs left over for everything else. That would be one way of doing it. Uh, in fact, how video buffering occurs varies tremendously by application. So YouTube, for instance, does it differently than um, Netflix. All of these networks are very resilient and adapt to available bandwidth. So that is one of the reasons that they work as well as they do, even if they don't work perfectly all the time. Um, but you can still accomplish prioritization in a way where the prioritized traffic just does not have an adverse effect on the Netflix streams. You don't even have to do anything with Netflix. You can just let Netflix, it's smart enough to use the bandwidth efficiently, but you just need to be able to take some amount of the traffic and give it higher priority. And in a lot of these applications, the total number of bits that get prioritized are so low relative to total traffic going through that you would never even see any adverse effect on the other applications. And as I mentioned, the uh, unfortunate consequence of network neutrality is that we cannot even experiment. We cannot even think about business cases because right now they're just not possible. Yeah. And, and the justification for the rules was that internet providers had an incentive and were going to undermine the internet through paid prioritization, we're not even at the business model stage. Like you just said, we might not even have seen experimentation for a couple of years, even longer, because one of the arguments the left has made in favor of net neutrality is that, well, if they say they didn't want to do it anyway, then why shouldn't we ban it? But the point is we didn't even get to try anything because now it's completely banned. Um, to close out the show, we talked about technological barriers, um, regulatory barriers, making sure that small cells can be deployed, simplifying pole attachment, all that stuff. Are there other obstacles to 5G? Things like 
global standards. You mentioned the ITU, the UN body that sets standards for uh, in certain ways for the internet. How's it going to work when you've got your 5G connection and then you get on a plane and go somewhere else? Are there challenges with global harmonization? We would like our networks to be globally harmonized, meaning using the same frequencies around the world, because that means it's easier and less expensive to develop devices that work at the same frequencies all around the world. That has always proven very challenging because different countries have allocated frequencies differently. Right. So global harmonization is a goal. As it turns out, one of the key frequencies that the U.S. is looking at, as well as some Asian countries for 5G is 28 gigahertz, which is right now not one of the bands that the ITU uh, is working with. So there are definitely challenges there. As long as we're speaking about spectrum, though, the two things I'd like to add with respect to regulation is that even though we're making progress with millimeter wave, we still really need more in the lower frequencies. We need to keep opening up um, lower frequency bands for 4G, 5G. And then the other item is spectrum sharing. Spectrum sharing is a way for disparate groups to use the same spectrum. Spectrum sharing has huge potential long-term, but it is extraordinarily complex. And I'm just hoping that we don't mandate unrealistic spectrum sharing um, objectives prematurely. It has its place, but it has to be done very carefully. The basic idea being study it first before issuing mandates. Or do it in one frequency band, become very good at it. For example, spectrum sharing is gonna be done using a spectrum access system at 3.5 gigahertz. That is being developed. It is going to be the most complex spectrum management system ever developed by anybody. So let's figure that out before we apply it to other bands. There is some consideration with 5G spectrum to use spectrum sharing developed for three and a half gigahertz, use that method for millimeter wave, we're not ready. Let's figure it out at 3.5 and then look at how we might apply it in other bands. Well, we'll leave it there. My guest has been Peter Rasavi, president of Rasavi Research, a wireless technology consulting firm. Peter's been specializing in this area for over 20 years. And on his website, he has over 116 articles and publications about this issue. Peter, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you very much. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at media at techfreedom.org. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.